Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narrative shaping the industry. I'm Rich Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Rich G. Gall. And I'm here with my co-host Jennifer Riggins, as always. You can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins. And in this week's episode, we're talking with Saron Yitbarek, who is the CEO of Disco, which is a audio platform for tech skills. She was also the CEO and founder of Code Newbie, which was or is a community for people learning to code that was recently acquired. As well as all of that, Saron is also the presenter of of Command Line Heroes, which is a great podcast from Red Hat, you might know. We're going to talk to her a little bit about that. So yeah, so it's going to be a great episode. Uh, we're going to talk about lots of different things. I think you'll really enjoy it. I think anyone that knows Saron knows that she's a really big influence on the industry and she has lots of insights on how we can better onboard and support people through their learning journey. So yeah, so excited to speak to her about that. So let's first off introduce Saron. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Cool. So I gave you a little bit of an introduction, but I know there's quite a lot to you and you're working quite a lot of different things. So could you, anyone listening, give an introduction to yourself? Absolutely. So I've been in tech for the past uh, about eight, nine years now. Started my journey doing startups, then got into, uh, learned how to how to code, and then became a developer for a couple of years, and then started CodeNubi somewhere um, along that path. And CodeNubi is a community of people who are learning to code, and we produce a couple podcasts at a conference, and uh, we used to do meetups all over the U.S., and our whole goal is to use media to connect people and create a really exciting, supportive community for people who are on this journey. And so uh, with all that in mind, we actually ended up uh, selling to another community called Forum, which is an incredible, uh, started off as an online Twitter handle, actually, and then moved into a really, really popular forum. And then now they are creating forums for other communities as well. And so they acquired us a little over a year ago. And so I'm consulting for them. I'm on their board and I'm still very much involved, still host the shows, that sort of thing. And after that, I decided that I wanted to do it all over again. Uh, so now I'm a second second time entrepreneur working on a company called Disco, where we produce audio courses for people uh, who, well, hopefully in, in different industries, but we're starting with people in tech. So you're you're clearly kind of in this sort of learning education side of the industry. I wanted to ask I wanted to ask you about Code Newbie and Disco separately, but maybe it makes more sense to talk about them together. But just in terms of like starting Code Newbie and then later Disco, like. What were your sort of own experiences with learning to code and what did you find hard that sort of informed these two initiatives? Yeah, so with learning to code, um, you know, what what I really took away from the experience is that it's not a lack of resources, especially not today. There's so many resources available, so many free, so many cheap resources that you can use. It is the the community. That's really the difference. It's the loneliness that you can feel learning to code on your own. And when you're in a computer science program, you know, you're you're surrounded by students. When you're in a boot camp, you're again surrounded by members of your cohort. But when you're purely learning on your own, when you're going through um, you know, free YouTube videos, for example, it is so hard to just get through all of that on an emotional level. And that's where we come in. We want to be your supportive emotional system so that you feel confident in your ability to do it and that you're able to actually get through a lot of the humps and and dips that come with learning to code. That's probably the most important thing I took away from my coding experience. 
And so, say, take go nearly like what sort of conversations and sort of things did you see people talking about? Like, what did people want to talk about? Like, where were people sort of, how were they sort of thinking, I guess? Sure. So our show is divided up into kind of three buckets. So the first is personal stories. People love personal stories. So just hearing how did, you know, the the babysitter become a developer? How did the truck driver, which is one of our most popular episodes, become a developer? So how did we, uh, you know, how did these people start one career and then end up breaking into tech? And what was that process like? Those personal stories are definitely one of the most popular types of stories that we do on Code Newbie. The second is talking about technical topics themselves. So what is automation? What is testing? What are PWAs? What are these different words that people may have heard of before? And kind of doing a really beginner-friendly intro uh, introduction to these topics is another big thing. And then the third thing is kind of the, the tech culture, the tech scene. So things that aren't technical, but that have to do with you being a developer. So for example, um, technical interviews might be one. How to balance side projects might be another. Burnout was one of, a, 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 one of our popular episodes episodes as well. So kind of like, what is it like to actually be a software engineer in this industry? Those are the three topics that we focus on for the podcast. And definitely those personal stories of this is how I did it. This is, you know, how I fit it into my day. This is how difficult it was. Those stories are definitely the most, uh, the most uh, valuable for our community. What was your favorite so far? What was the one that surprised you, excited you the most? Mm, I have to think about that one. There've been like hundreds over the years. Wow. Probably the truck. No, no, actually, I'm going to say one of our very, very first episodes. I think it was like episode three or something many, many years ago with Brian Douglas, where he was talking about how he was learning how to code. I think right now he works at uh, GitHub, but he was just getting started learning how to code. And he just told just these beautiful stories of trying to be, you know, a working dad, right? He had a full time sales job. He would squeeze in coding, you know, during his 30 minute lunch break. And then he would wake up at like four o'clock in the morning to code for a couple hours before, uh, you know, he had to go to work and take care of the baby. And then he would get home and code, you know, after everyone was asleep until midnight and just hearing about the hustle, you know, and just hearing about just, you know, how people find little pockets of time and find a way to make it work is just really inspiring to me. Absolutely. And it's interesting. It fits in with all these other topics. Like when you talk about tech culture, whether it's learning how to then turn that self-learning into a job exactly. or dealing yeah. with burnout because- That's a really valid point. A lot of self-taught people are pulling other jobs and are raising families and are taking care of others and themselves and have burnout even before they join the tech community. Absolutely. Exactly. Like I said, it's it's more emotional than anything else. And just knowing that, you know, it's not hard because of you. It's hard because it's hard. You know, it's just a hard thing to learn and that's okay. I wanted to kind of move on to Disco and could you sort of explain how it kind of compares to Code Newbies, but also where the idea came, like how it sort of evolved out of what you'd done previously, I suppose. Absolutely. And for for Disco, it kind of feels like a continuation of my work at Code Newbie, where, you know, Code Newbie was all about using media to create community. And we really focused on our podcast was our, our big kind of the main thing that we did. And that's all about using audio to educate and elevate, right? To bring people to reach their career goals and to help them be not just developers, but hopefully happy developers, you know, developers who enjoy what they do and have a fulfilling career. And so to that vein, Disco kind of plays a next step to that where disco is again using audio to educate people so we are using the same medium the same power of audio to get people excited about uh, different technical topics and get them excited about about just just 
learning and continuing to involve as professionals. So it's just kind of a continuation of that journey. Uh, it's been just really fun to, to be able to learn so much technical content, translate that into audio education. You know, it is scripted. So it's very different in that sense where it's not, you know, interviews with different people. It's me talking directly to you, but it definitely feels like the next step in, in my personal journey uh, and in the journey of, you know, educating people through audio. So it looks like according to LinkedIn, you started around August, 2020. Here we are recording this in April, 2021. And I'm just wondering, was it always the plan to do audio only? Or was that in response to, you know, the Zoom fatigue we were or still enduring in 2020 and 2021? Or do you think that was just a happy coincidence? I think it was more of a coincidence. You know, the idea came about because I I liked the idea of audio. I liked this idea of professional development. I was doing some research to see if there's anything in that space that might be interesting, that might be, you know, that where there might be an opportunity gap in the market. And in doing that research, I kind of realized like, wow, we have so much, you know, educational content available to us, so many different things, but they're all video or text right? They're all like books or blog posts or they're, you know, Coursera, YouTube, just tons of video. But for people who, you know, aren't visual learners or who don't have the time, the luxury to sit at a computer for hours to learn, if they want to learn something on the go, there really isn't an option for them. And that's kind of where that idea came from. Do you have anything besides the audio portion, like exercises to do afterwards or written examples or things to back it up? Or are you going all in on audio? It's very interesting. Yeah, we plan to have those things, but not yet. So right now we have the transcripts. You always have that as a reference for you. We have, uh, you know, uh, like a, a reading list of, of things that we suggest that you read and we have uh, takeaways. So we highlight some of the key parts of the the um, the course in case you want to reference something really quickly and kind of remember a, a key note that you have. But we don't have anything interactive yet. And then why disco? We're all about naming things and understanding <laughs> why that name. Uh, it means to learn in Latin. So, yeah, well, hey. yeah. That's, <laughs> that's cool I didn't know that yeah yeah and my uh so actually I came up with the idea I'm in a I'm in business school right now I go to Columbia and we have uh, an entrepreneurship class and we had to come up with a business idea and so this spawned uh from that I was already thinking of starting a business anyway and then that kind of just you know forced me to, to focus on it and kind of get to work right away and uh my original name for it was Audify which I think is a terrible name and I told my team I was like look man I hate this name I'm terrible with names I can't think of anything better if you have anything please let me know and one of my classmates came up with this go and I was like oh that's so much better <laughs> so much better than what I could do I like Audify but I feel like you may that have had some legal issues with a certain streaming company that probably like <laughs> probably yeah um, I wanted to ask about, so for anyone who maybe hasn't done audio learning before, uh, maybe people are sort of skeptical about it. Um, like, why do you think audio learning is great? Like, why should people try it out? Like, what's good about it? I think the biggest upside to audio learning is really the convenience factor. Uh, you know, what's really interesting about audio is people have a lot of time to listen. A lot of time. I would say they have more time to listen than they do to watch because you're always multitasking, right? When you go for a walk, you go for a run, you take out the trash, you're doing dishes, you're cooking. You have all these built-in opportunities to, to learn and to level up that people aren't necessarily taking advantage of. And so we're saying, you know, you already have the time. You don't have to make additional time for this. With the time that you 
you already have, let's use that and let's focus on learning and making you, you know, just a little bit smarter, a little bit more knowledgeable. So that's really the biggest upside is that you can do this while you do other things. And, you know, now that we're talking about like COVID and Zoom fatigue, I think it's really helpful to have an alternative medium, right? A different way to learn. If you're tired of looking at your screen, looking at your phone, you have another opportunity to learn to get that value while having some, uh, you know, some, some freedom for your eyes and being able to rest your eyes a little bit. So I think those are the two big benefits of audio learning. It kind of gets rid of the excuses because we often procrastinate by cleaning the house or something, but you can do both. Yep. There's no excuse. You got it. (laughs) Or you can podcasting is great. Listening to podcasts or recording audio learning is fantastic when you're breastfeeding. Mm. You can't look at anything else. So it's actually a really good tool for that or for people that can't see, of course, or vice versa. I like that you're still offering the transcripts for those that are hearing impaired. Mm -hmm. That's great. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I wanted to also ask you about Command Line Heroes, your podcast for Red Hat. It's a really interesting podcast. And I think what it tries to do is sort of something that we're really interested in on on this series. Um, So I was wondering if you could sort of talk about where that came from and also for anyone listening, kind of what it's all about and what the idea behind it is. Absolutely. So Command Line Heroes is a show that is produced by Red Hat, uh, and I have the the great privilege of getting to host it. And it's a really great show. I absolutely love that show. And it is basically a 30-minute part scripted, part interview show where we talk about different aspects of technology, focusing on the command line heroes, focusing on the developers behind the the screen, you know, behind the, the keyboard, and focusing on their stories. So we talk a lot about different people and their accomplishments, different parts of history, different times in history, different gadgets and tools that have really revolutionized computing and the people who made those things happen. So it's it's almost like a historical lens on, on coding. So we don't teach you how to code. That's not really the point. Uh, it's really about looking back and just appreciating who we are as developers, what our history is and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, I think that's a, a really valuable thing to do because it, I think sometimes we sort of forget to, I guess, was historicize it really. And I'm sort of interested in, or I, I'm trying to think through how you could sort of draw a line between those sorts of conversations that historicize technology and kind of some of the, I know you sort of talked about in, in a few talks, the work around sort of accessibility and sort of on-ramping people into the industry. Like, do you think those sort of conversations connect to that idea about accessibility? Yeah, I mean, I think that accessibility is interesting because it, it can mean one of two things, right? I think that um, what most people mean when they talk about accessibility is different types of abilities and making sure that differently abled people are able to do their work, you know, be entertained, access technology, and be able to, to use the same resources that the rest of us can use. So I don't want to take away from that definition, right? Because that's a very specific definition. I think that accessibility in the way that you're talking about it is more in terms of, you know, making the content feel doable. Because the thing is, the information is out there, right? There's so much content, so much information available. It's not a lack of resources. But even if you have those resources, knowing about them is an issue of accessibility. Feeling just emotionally that you can do it is an issue of accessibility. Seeing, you know, seeing is believing. And if you don't see people who are like you who are doing the work, believing that you can do the work is an accessibility issue. So I think that those are the problems that we need to talk about. And I think that, you know, with Command Line Heroes in particular, I think that, you know, our, our goal isn't necessarily 
necessarily that, but we do try to keep that in mind. We actually had a mini series with Clive Thompson, an author and journalist who wrote a book called Coders. And in Coders, he talks about what it's like to be a coder from the coder's perspective. And we talk about, uh, you know, code newbies specifically and about people who are just getting started on their journey. And we had a little mini series. We had a three-part interview with Clive where we talked about that book and we talked about the journey that developers go through and how they break into tech, how they go about their day-to-day. And it was just a really nice way of bringing newer developers into the conversation, validating their experience, their frustrations, and letting them know that they have a place there. Yeah, I have read that book. It's really good. I think it kind of gives a, or, or kind of, and, and the work you do as well, kind of gives a sort of, yes, kind of insight into what developers do, but it also sort of reminds people, especially if you're new to the industry, that the things that are made and built are sort of made by people. They're, they're not like inevitable things that just exist. They're yes, exactly. things that are built by people with skills who make decisions. And yeah, I think that's quite important to remember for the kind of wider audience anyway. Absolutely, for sure. I think one of the most, one of the biggest challenges now is there's not just command line, there's a million of probably a plethora at least of languages that people can learn. And especially when you're self-teaching, obviously, if you're going through a traditional university, it may not even be the most relevant, but someone is providing a syllabus for you. So they're deciding what you are learning. How do you recommend code newbies go about deciding what kind of code they want to learn to write, what kind of areas they want to do, and how do they decide what's a valid source? Because the internet's a cesspool of crap too. So what do you find works for what people and how do they know they're getting a real education and learning real things? Yeah, I think that the validating part is not too big of a pain point for technology because if the code doesn't work, you can see that it doesn't work. I think it's hard to trick people with false information for this industry. You know, for example, if you're learning history, you can just learn incorrect facts and you'll never know it, right? If you're following a tutorial and the things that they say doesn't work for, you know, on your on your computer isn't, you know, giving you the results, then you know that's a bad tutorial and you could kind of move on. So I think that issue is a little bit easier to solve in our industry than it is in other other industries. I think that in terms of finding a curriculum, that's the tough part, right? Like we talk, uh, we talk about it being, um, you know, tutorial hell of just being stuck doing uh, tutorials over and over again, and kind of jumping between resources and not really having a focus. And that's really been a huge pain point for a lot of people. And so for that, I would say pick a existing curriculum, just pick one and just stick with it. Stick with it no matter what. The Odin Project was a project that I, I don't know if it's still around, but it was really popular a couple of years ago, where basically outlined exactly the curriculum for you and told you where to go, what to study next. And it was leveraging free or really cheap resources that already existed. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't going to be an access issue, but they organized all the information for you. And I think that was really valuable. Similarly, I know the Flatiron School has like a pre-work program where they give you, I believe it's free, where they give you, uh, you know, a list of things. Things to, to go through and to learn on their platform. And you can walk yourself through those at your own pace on your own time. And so I believe there are existing curriculums. I think if you go to free code camp, you know, and you say, I want to learn JavaScript, they have a curriculum for you. So I would say rather than just Google searching technologies, which I think can get very confusing, I would try and Google search curriculums and see if you can find a track, see if you can find a front end track, a back end track, uh, a design track. And once you find one that, you know, looks good, maybe has some good reviews, just do it. 
stick through it, stick with it. And at the end of it, I think you'll have a better sense of what you need to dig deeper into, right? You'll have a sense of, and I really had a rough time with that CSS. Okay, now let me spend the next couple of weeks or maybe even months just focusing on CSS. You know, I've had trouble with that back end with this specific, specific library. Let me now dig some dig, uh, dig into that a little bit more. So I think that curriculum is first sticking with it. And then once you do, you'll have an easier time of focusing, of knowing what to focus on. Is it important to be participating in open source projects so you have code samples during the entire process or do you want to wait until you feel your code is up to snuff? Yeah, so I think that open source can be really valuable depending on the way that you learn. So it's definitely scary, right? I don't think that I can say anything that'll convince people that it's not. You know, luckily there's been a, a movement in the just in the coding community in general to be more kind and more open to beginners. And I think that we can see that in the repos. There are beginner tags uh, for different repos now that tell people, you know, this is a beginner friendly, uh, you know, feature that you can work on. So I think that's been really helpful. But at the end of the day, you know, submitting code publicly is just, you know, it's, it's just a scary thing. And so for that, you know, I totally get that people may not feel ready for that. And I, I don't want people to feel like they have to do that if they just feel like they're not ready. So I think that open source is a good opportunity. If you feel comfortable, definitely leverage it. Uh, it'll only, you know, it, it'll only help you um, assuming that you work on a good repo and there's solid contributors that are going to, you know, give you helpful feedback. I think it's going to be a great, it's definitely a great resource, but if you feel like you need a little bit of time to get there, I think that's totally good as well. What about non-tech roles in tech? Can you be, maybe you're not a code newbie then, but do you have to learn to code? Are there so many other roles if tech is swallowed everything now? Yeah, I mean, I think it totally depends on the job itself. So I can't speak too generally, but I will say that, uh, you know, we had one person, I'm forgetting her name right now, uh, but we had a, a woman on the show many years ago on the Code Newbie podcast where she was a journalist and she wanted to learn to code because she was going to write an article about Git and, you know, wanted to actually use it. And uh, she did that and she kind of got into it and she ended up using coding as a way to inspire her in her writing and as a way to, you know, help her as a journalist of, you know, better understanding different ideas. And and she never became a coder, was never trying to become a coder, but coding was influential in helping her write different articles that she wrote for her publication. And so I think that learning to code is definitely, you're not going to feel like you wasted your time, right? I think that in, in a lot of professions, especially if it's tech adjacent, I think that there's always going to be a benefit to learning to code and being at the very least conversant, right? And being able to communicate with other developers on your team. I think that alone is very helpful. But I also feel like there's, there's a pressure to learn to code that may maybe just too much. You know, I, I don't think that everyone needs to learn. It's good if you want to, it's good if you can, but ultimately we don't all need to be developers. And I think that, you know, in the age of really pushing for tech and pushing for coding, I think we need to remember that there are, you know, there, there are millions more nurses in the US than there are coders. You know, like coding is not the only industry out there. So I think it's important for us to, to keep that in perspective. That being said, my best friend was a nurse and trained as a nurse, but as learn to code to be able to do industry systems and to have better hours mm. while deploying systems. So there is that nice. too, but there's also, we've talked to people in this no code movement, which is also a valid right. form, but I think there's always value in learning a foreign language. And if you're learning to code, you are still learning a new language. So it can make you a better empathetic person and better across on the business side of tech and of business in general, but I guess maybe it does need to be required in schools would be actually a good skill set to teach in high school, but 
I completely agree. I mean, if you have to learn Spanish for four years, you should at least learn a programming language for one. So I am a huge, a huge supporter in, in, in that uh, in that regard. I definitely think that learning how to code should be one of those things that everyone gets to try, you know, and, and gets to, to join in. And if you want to stick with it through college, cool. If not, that's fine too. But I think exposure to it is it should be required for sure. Yeah, I think it's probably a good way of demonstrating to, especially, you know, to that sort of age, like how these systems and how these machines work in the same way as, you know, showing uh, an English student how to structure an argument, structure a piece of writing. It's it's just showing off that really, rather than going, oh, you're going to be a coder. It's like, this is how a web page is made. This is what it looks like. This is what it's made of. Because that then still has lots of knock-on effects, not just for, you know, a more sort of code-enabled workforce or all that sort of thing, but it, it kind of gives people insight into, okay, this is how it works. This is kind of where I'm being tracked. It kind of gives you all this kind of broader sense of how the digital world works. And yes. I think that's, that's almost as important as being able to code or something. For sure. Absolutely. Just being more aware of how things work. I think it just helps you get a little bit of power back. And I think that's really important. I wanted to ask you about, so we talk, talked about kind of starting off in the industry, but I know you've spoken a little bit about a kind of phrase you had on ramping and I was kind of interested in your perspective on how we can all, um, maybe kind of what you do to sort of build a more like open culture, more open tech culture and sort of better communities as well that are sort of more empowering and more open to people that are new to it. Yeah, I think that in terms of on-ramping and helping to get more people not into tech, but smoother, you know, to, to make that journey smoother into tech. I think that one of the easiest things that we can do is just to be kind. Uh, you know, a lot of the value of the Codenubi community isn't just the stuff that I do. It's not just the podcast and the online forum and the conference. Like, it's not really, it's not just that. That's, that's obviously very valuable, but it's not just that. It's really the individual interactions. It's seeing the individual senior developers reach out and just show kindness, show support, show help, provide mentorship, provide, you know, uh, debugging time, provide guidance. Like it's really those opportunities that are so, so valuable. And that's really what makes up a community to begin with. And so that's probably the easiest thing to do is just be kind. If you see someone struggling, if you see someone who's, you know, quietly struggling, offer some help, offer, you know, an opportunity to ask questions. I think that for, for beginners, I think one of the hardest things to do is to ask questions. It's just a nerve because you feel like you should know everything already. And one thing that seniors are much better at doing is asking a question much sooner, much earlier in their debugging process than newbies are. So if you see someone struggling who's kind of hesitant to ask a question, be the first one, be the first one to go, hey, you know, I, I saw you've been kind of working on that for a while, anything I can help with. So that's the easiest thing to do is just be kind, look out for those opportunities for, you know, micro mentorship, Twitter mentorship, as I like to call it, and see if there are opportunities for you to, to just make someone's journey a little bit easier. One thing that just occurred to me sort of as you, as you were talking, um, so we, we've talked to kind of a lot of people who sort of work in this field like yourself, and obviously you, you do good work in this field too. But I'm sort of wondering if these sort of great organisations are a sort of symptom of what something that maybe isn't happening in within organisations and whether there's a gap there. Um, I'm sort of interested in your perspective on that. Absolutely. I think that nowadays there definitely is this mainstream movement in the tech community to be more inclusive inclusive, to be more diverse, to be more open to new developers. So I think that at this point, uh, I think it'd be hard to start a code newbie today. 
But I think that when we first started it uh, about six years ago now, that was definitely very new. And the idea of being, you know, nice to being just being nice to people in general in, in tech was still unfortunately a new idea. And so I definitely think that there was a need. I think that there was, uh, you know, a, a gap in the market, so to speak, where people felt that they didn't have a place to go. They felt that they didn't have a community of people who would support them and just be, you know, be welcoming. I think that was definitely a pain point and something we didn't see in the industry. Yeah. Has the HR community caught up to all these this idea of accessibility and inclusion and allowing alternative routes to your coding education? Yeah. I don't think so. I was really expecting to see more progress made in that department, but I I haven't seen anywhere near the level of progress that I expected to at this point. I definitely think that, you know, there's been a lot of pushback against whiteboard interviews, which has been, you know, a a major source of pain for, for all developers at all different levels and particularly painful for new developers. So I think we're starting to see a, you know, a little bit of movement there of kind of shifting away from that. So that's been good, but again, very slow. Um, I have seen more junior developers positions open up over the years. So that's been good, but still slow. Um, one thing I've seen is is the the title associate developer, which I think is a the new title. At least it's not one that I'd heard of before, which is kind of replacing the idea of a junior developer. And I like associate better. It sounds a little bit more official. It sounds a little bit more professional. It kind of feels like you know you're you're step one onto. It feels like you're on a ramp, right? You're you're at the beginning of that ramp, but you're going to ramp your way up. So I like it a lot better, and I think that's a good step to take. But overall, no, I don't think the HR community has really caught up. I think that we're still. Doing a poor job of providing people with, um, you know, a system of support on the job and giving people an opportunity to really prove themselves and prove their skills, even if they don't have a computer science degree, even if they don't have, uh, you know, a, a degree from, you know, a, an Ivy League school. Uh, I don't think that we've done a really good job on that now. And also most junior developer job titles or entry-level de- job titles still are expecting two to three years experience, exactly, but exactly. aren't validating the free experience of completing a course or contributing to an open source project. Exactly. You know that. Absolutely. I wanted to, so as we get into the last part of our conversation, just to ask you for your perspective on what you think the future of, of this sort of field will look like and two things really like what can we do to to sort of change it uh, and sort of are you, are you sort of seeing any evidence of that at the moment? Yeah, I think we mentioned this uh, very briefly earlier, but I think that no-code tools is going to be very interesting. I'm really, really interested to see where that goes and where that takes us. You know, no-code is interesting because I think that it takes kind of the low-hanging fruit of the things that developers might make, and it allows people to not need to hire developers to make those things. And so I'm curious to see how that affects the the tech industry and the role of developers. My guess is that it's going to push developers to to do more complex things such that, you know, no one's going to hire, I'm not going to say no one, but most people aren't necessarily going to hire someone to do a really simple website, you know, because they have Squarespace today. And similarly, companies might not be, you know, as as eager, as willing to hire developers to build a very simple crowd app if they know they can do that with Airtable or with um, Webflow or, you know, a bunch of these other no-code tools. And so that means that we need to get even better at coding. We need to be able to really prove our value by being, by being more advanced, by being more senior, by learning, you know, cutting edge technologies that these no-code tools can't do. And I think that we're going to need to prove our value by going deeper into the tech stack and just being really, really knowledgeable and being able to do things that uh, those no-code tools just can't do. That's actually really exciting, though, if you think about it, because that means developers are fully transitioning from so-called 
code monkeys to creative workers and doing and advancing their skill set and creativity while everyone, whether they can code or not, gets access to technology, which it honestly it is our future. So everyone mm-hmm. has to be involved in the creation and and the testing and using of it. Hundred percent agree. Absolutely. I think that you know there, there's two sides to it. On the one hand, totally agree that you know it, it means that we're no longer code monkeys and we're kind of taken. Uh, you know, we're we're able to perform at our maximum potential in a way, which I think is very exciting. But I do think that the on ramps are going to have to change, right? If it's no longer enough to take a 12 week boot camp to learn the basics of building a CRUD app, if that's not enough to become, um, you know, a, a coder. What what do boot camps need to evolve to? What do these free tutorials online need to become in order to break into tech if the bar is higher? So I think that's going to be interesting to see. You know, how does the the code newbie community, the code newbie um, ecosystem, how does that evolve and how does that change to make sure there are still on ramps to becoming a developer? And there has to be some sort of bridge closing the schism between the education and the corporations Mm -hmm. that are hiring. There's often a big discrepancy. And then I think that's while four-year degrees are more hireable, there's actually a much broader gap between what is being taught at a university computer science course and what is being done in reality. Yes, so moving that gap, the business has to be involved with education more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, have you seen much evidence of that of like organizations really spending time in sort of supporting their developers to learn? Have you seen any good sort of practices that you think we should, you know, we should sort of evangelize for and promote, I suppose? Yeah, one program that I've seen uh, is the Google Certification Program, which is really exciting to see, where Google has created an entire library of, uh, I don't know how many certifications it is, but I know it's a lot. And they created courses for you to actually learn and study for those certifications. And I think that is just really great. I think this idea that you don't need a computer science degree, that you can get certified by Google, by the people who are going to potentially hire you, and they're telling you exactly what you need to know. And there's no kind of guesswork of like, oh, what, what's going to on the exam let me try to learn all these random things and hope that I'm prepared uh just knowing that there is you know go-to resources designed by the company you might potentially want to work for is a really good step and I'm interested to see if other companies follow if there's other companies that are going to start developing their own certification systems their own uh libraries for you to learn and level up and removing that computer science degree requirement and hopefully removing the cost because there are other exactly. companies doing it, but it costs money. Like to get your AWS certificate, it costs money, but anything mm-hmm. in the Kubernetes space, there's a lot of funding going in. So there's a lot of things you can get out of it for free, hopefully. Yep. And it's sure. a hot demand. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask you in the context of this kind of slightly changing tech world, tech environment, and sort of the the changes to sort of learning, so different ways of learning, what sort of your perspective on like the idea of meritocracy and like whether that will be like, how does that hold water and how might that shift in the next sort of few years really? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, when I I first heard of meritocracy before I was, you know, knowledgeable about the issues, I thought it was great. I think that the idea that, you know, you work hard and all that matters is the work that you do and you're able to move up the ladder, move into a different career because of, you know, purely how good you are is a beautiful idea. I think that's awesome. I would love for for that to, to exist, but unfortunately, it's just not true. There's too many systemic issues. There's too many biases. There's just too much other stuff to, you know, that, that happens that unfortunately does go into your assessment and people valuing you uh, and your worth that the meritocracy idea just doesn't pan 
pan out. It just doesn't, uh, we can't really implement it in any realistic way. So I think the idea of believing in it in today's historical context is uh, is just bad. Um, I think that that's just not, uh, you know, it's just not fair to the way that things actually happen for most people. And it's just not fair to people's experiences. So I, you know, I, I love the idea. I think that, you know, in theory, it is beautiful. In reality, it is just and uh, I'm starting to see that people are, are starting to understand that. I think that Black Lives Matter really made a huge impact in, you know, it, obviously in, in the world, uh, in, in the U.S. specifically. And I think that we're starting to see a little bit more sensitivity. I don't know how long it's going to last. You know, uh, Black Lives Matter happened over the summer. I think there's still some lasting effects. Hopefully there are some changes that are here to stay. But I do feel like people are more open to the conversation, are a bit more comfortable talking about systemic racism. Companies have been forced to take a stand one way or another. So that's been just really interesting to see. So I think that we are getting to a better place in those conversations and in realizing that there are things we need to actively do, not just quietly disagree with. But I, I think that we still have a long way to go. I think we're at the beginning of that journey. Yeah, I think, and, and as well, alongside the sort of discriminatory aspects of meritocracy, I think it also like misrepresents skills and learning and sort of, you know, skills aren't it's not one thing that you have a checklist of and you're the most skilled. It's skills are kind of quite, they're a diverse, complex thing that people develop at different times in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think if you talk about meritocracy, you sort of treat skills as a bit of a checklist and we'll all, we'll all be poor. I think if, if that's the way we approach learning and, and work really. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's not just, yeah, I think you nailed it. Like it's not just a checklist. There are different degrees of skills. There are different flavors of skills, different ways to approach certain skills. And I think that that's unique to the person, to how the person was raised, where they come from, what their experiences were like. And I think we definitely need to be more flexible in those requirements. And also meritocracy is just bullshit because no one has an equitable start. No one's starting at exactly. the same level. Exactly. Yep. Nailed it. Just to to end sort of the last sort of few minutes or so, uh, I want to give you a chance to sort of talk about anyone that sort of inspires you or has influenced you and maybe people that we should get on the podcast in the future. Like, yeah, could you could sort of shout them out, let us know who they are. Yeah, absolutely. Angie Jones is my hero. Uh, she is the automation queen. She is the Java champion. Uh, I started following her on Twitter some time ago and just watching her just do great things is incredible. She has, I think it's 27 pants, which is just incredible. I feel like she got to 25 and was like, let me do two more. Uh, and she's just, she's just amazing. She's so hardworking, so passionate about the community, so kind, so welcoming. And she is just, you know, just going through her career with such a force and doing it with love and kindness along the way. So she's definitely someone I, I really, I love to see her shine. I love to see her do well. Uh, and if you get a chance to have her on a podcast, I think that would be just phenomenal. Awesome. And finally, just to end, like, what are you like looking forward to or excited for over the next year or so? Like, what have you got lined up? Yeah, I'm really excited to to see kind of where Disco goes. I'm really excited to see how people interact with it and, and how people like it, how they use it, how it fits into their lives. So I'm really excited just to see kind of the, the next iteration of audio education and seeing where we land with that. Yeah, it's going to be exciting, I'm sure. And yeah, I need to I need to check out some of those courses and sort of experience them for myself. Mm -hmm. Just finally, sure. um, where can people find you online? Have you got anything you want to promote or anything that people should look at? 
For sure. Uh, check me out online. Uh, Saran Yitbarik is my Twitter handle, just my first name, last name. That's probably where I am most active. Uh, besides that, I do have my website, saranyitbarik.com. And you can see I, I, I used to do a little bit of cartooning, digital cartoons. So you can see a little bit of that online and some blog posts and stuff that I wrote. So yeah, those are those are my two places. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this Friday. We really appreciate Absolutely. your time. It's been great. We've, uh, we've learned a lot. And yeah, it's good to, I think, really good to talk about learning. And we've talked, we've talked a lot about that lately, I think. Um, a lot. Of, yeah, I think it's well, to be honest, if we're talking about tech storytellers, that is our job to constantly learn from yeah. others and community builders. You don't just create a community. It's a learning exchange. So it totally makes sense. Also, we're clearly just learning from everyone else as we experiment on a podcast journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, Each thanks other. very much. Thank you for You're very welcome. Us. Thanks for having me, for sure. That's pretty much all we've got time for on this week's show. Once again, thank you to Saron for joining us. We really appreciate her time and all her insights and, yeah, coming on to talk about her experience. Also, thank you to you as well for listening to what we talk about when we talk about tech. As always, you can check out our earlier episodes on our website, which is talkabouttechpodcast.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at underscore talkabouttech. As I mentioned at the start, my handle is at Rich G Gore and Jennifer's is at JK Riggins. So please do give us a follow. Feel free to message us. We always like to hear from you guys. But yeah, thanks for listening. And we'll be back next time with another guest. So until then, stay safe and goodbye.